His career law enforcement officer was shot five times. One shot left him totally blind in one eye, legally blind in the other, left him with kidney failure. He had a kidney transplant that after many years failed. And then in a miraculous set of circumstances, received another kidney. And he's here to tell the story. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma. Police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Calling us from Georgia. On the phone we have Sergeant David James. He is a current law enforcement officer serving for a sheriff's department in the state of Georgia for obvious reasons we don't want to say the name of the agency. By the way, they're a good agency. Produce some awesome law men and women. Uh, they've done some great things to help out fellow law enforcement officers and, and the citizens as well. David, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Very much appreciated. I appreciate you having me on the show, uh, Mr. Wiley. Thanks it's a pleasure. Sir. Now you call me Mr. I'll have to call you Sergeant. So why don't we just skip Wait, the formalities? Yeah, David and Jay are work fine with me. How's that? Uh, that's right. By the way, when I retired at the rank of sergeant, no one ever called me Sarge ever again. Ever. Amen to that. I told him my, my chosen uh, given name was David, not Sergeant. That, that works for me. <laughs> I understand totally. Uh, now, I understand you're getting ready to retire in a couple months. So uh, you've been in law enforcement about how long? Uh, when I retire in July, it'll be 33 years. So that's a long time. That's an awful yep. long time, and you've been through a lot. I happen to know some of your story. People listening are going to hear. I'll be honest with you. Uh, parts of David's story are so incredible. Uh, some people would use the term miraculous. Some would use divine intervention. Some would use spectacular, whatever. You're going to find his story to be absolutely amazing. I'm getting goosebumps right now just just teasing this little bit of the story because I happen to know more about it. Before we get to that part, uh, you are currently serving. You could have retired a long time ago, but you want to continue to serve your agency. That is that is admirable. I know a lot of law enforcement people that want to do the same thing you did that were hurt badly, catastrophically in similar situations, but their agencies either did not provide them with a place where they could uh, do the job or were unable to. So also, a big kudos to your sheriff's department. Please pass on a word to them. I said thank you for what they've done. Yeah, and that is awesome that you have an agency like the one I work for that are they retain you and let you continue working because I've been, been in law enforcement for this many years. I've met a lot of officers that have to take medical retirement, and they never really wanted to retire. Yeah. You know, they wanted to continue to serve their communities. And a lot of them may not be able to do full patrol duties due to physical limitations, but they've got 10, 15 years experience, and they're very, very good at law enforcement. They're very good at investigating, and they can contribute in a lot of ways, especially in teaching younger officers how to do the job the best way possible that protects the community, all the things that we were raised with. When they're forced to retire against their will, you lose a vital, vital part of your agency. Right. So I'm and glad you I, were. I think st- I'm glad you stuck around. I'm glad they let you stick around. 
Yes, sir. And I'm very fortunate because the sheriff that I worked for back in 1990, you know, he came to me and said, hey, if you want to come back to work, we will find you a place to work. And as long as I'm the sheriff of this county, you will have a job. And that speaks volumes of a man that does something like that. It is. And there was an old rule of thumb that they used to have. It's unwritten rule in the Baltimore Police Department and when I was in the job. And the deal was if you were shot in the line of duty, you're able to return to work in a full capacity situation. A lot of people weren't able to, but the ones that could, they got to pick their choice of assignment, whatever they wanted right. from that point on. And that's that was, I thought, admirable. But a lot of people that were catastrophically injured, their careers were over. And it was over suddenly. That was the case for me. My, my injury is not catastrophic, but it, it's legally, I couldn't do the job anymore. And we talk about billet and manpower and, and funding. They're like, we'd rather have you retired than have you on the job. Wow. And that's the, it, that's the reality. The stark reality of what happens across the United States. It becomes a counting issue when you have county governments involved. It's not, right. not always the department. A lot of times it's the county government, state government, city government. But I, I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your story. And let's go back to uh, 1990. How long were you in law enforcement before your incident? I started in May of 1986. I started out in the jail, spent 18 months in the jail, and I think it was, let's see, 86, 87, I attended the, uh, the police academy here in the state of Georgia. And we, uh, back then, it was kind of funny, I'll share this, going old school here. When we first started, you know, I remember being issued that 357, 12 rounds, six in the gun, six on the belt, and a pair of handcuffs, and that's it. We didn't get the batons or PR-24 back then or anything. And uh, But anyway, I uh, spent, you know, 18 months, went on the road. In January of 1988, I was reassigned to the road patrol. Spent uh, a little over two years on the road patrol at that time. And uh, March 2nd, 1990, I was... Uh, Given a call, they trouble with the subject, and when I arrived, the, I was speaking with a complainant. He was telling me the story. Her son, that was 13, and another child that was 13, had gotten off the school bus. Bus pulls off, and four teenage boys had pulled up beside him, got out of the car, kind of roughed him up a little bit, produced a gun, and basically just left at that point. Well, as I was getting the information on the description of the four boys and their vehicle, well, they drove back through the neighborhood, but in the neighborhood they drove back through, they didn't see my patrol car. And the lady said, well, there's the ghost of the car right there. So as I, I said, hold on, let me go catch up with them. They stopped at one of them's girlfriend's house. Well, there was only two in the vehicle at that time. Well, one had gotten out when I pulled up to them and was uh, on the porch, and the other one was sitting in the vehicle. Okay, uh, when I tell my story, I tell about my mistakes. Go ahead. I want you to. Okay. Okay. And I just want to make sure you were good with that because when I do this in teaching officer survival, I tell my mistakes. Okay. So the one kid, he was up on the porch. The other one was in the vehicle. And one of the things that I did, you know, we as in law, when we're in law enforcement, I think at a very young age, we feel like we're invincible. Mm-hmm. And Nothing bad's going to happen to me. Right. And you don't think it will ever will. You hear all the stories, you know, losses being injured in the line of duty, killed in the line of duty, but you never dream that it's going to happen to you. Well, that day, I made mistakes that I should never have made as a patrol officer. 
uh, when I get out of the car, I told the kid that was up on the porch, hey, I need to talk to you. I need you to come down. And the kid that was in the vehicle, I said, hey, I need you to get out. Well, the very first mistake that I made is the suspect's car, instead of pulling behind like we're trained in the academy, I pulled in front of the vehicle at an angle. And my thought process that day was, if he's going to try to run in that car, I've got him blocked in. I won't make it difficult. Well, that's the first thing. The second mistake is we're not made out of sugar. It started raining, and I went to my trunk to grab my rain gear and hat cover. And when I put the key in, popped the trunk open, went to reach for my left hand to grab my gear, that's when he shot me. Now, you must not have been Uh, thinking that this was a serious, potentially violent situation when you stopped these cats, did you? No. I mean, they're 16- and 17-year-old kids. Right. And most of the time... Yeah, far be it from what people say in the media, they lead you to believe that we suspect everybody's capable of horrendous violence. And while they are, it's not a, the first thing that comes to your mind. And we're dealing right. with teenagers. That was not always the first thing that came to my mind. And I can understand that it didn't come to yours. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Sergeant David James. You don't want to go anywhere. We'll be right back. I am Meg Marie O'Rourke from Harmony with Food. Do you ever wonder what foods you should or should not be consuming based on your own unique needs? At Harmony with Food, we are now able to determine exactly what foods we should or should not be consuming through advanced testing. Test, don't guess is the motto at Harmony with Food's BioUnique Boutique program. It has never been easier than now to determine what food, drinks, and supplements you need for your individualized needs. Head over to harmonywithfood.com and click on the testing tab. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T radio show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T radio show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. This portion of the radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. When you have a chance, be sure to go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and download our free mobile app. We have a version for your Android and iPhone devices. It's 100% free. Get it at lawenforcementtoday.com. Back to the Law Enforcement Today show. We are talking with Sergeant David James. We're going to call him Dave. He's going to call me Jay. Uh, Is it David or Dave? Uh, David. Okay. I'll call you David. Then you can call me John Joseph. How's that? Hi, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that you were mentioning, and and I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but you got shot, and you got shot viciously uh, multiple times, and it was March of 1990. And one of the things you were saying is that you made mistakes that a patrol officer should never make. Right. And and one of the things I think is so important for people to hear is, A, that we don't walk around thinking that everybody's a threat to us. B, that we don't think necessarily something bad's going to happen to us. And C, when you have that that police officer that pulls you over and you think they're a little rough, uh, they don't need to be as on guard as they are, these are part of the reasons why. They're trained that after years and years and hundreds of not thousands of officers have been catastrophically injured 
or killed in the line of duty due to mistakes that happen that that we all make at one point or another. Right. So you're hey. you're there and and you're reaching in your patrol car trunk to get out your raincoat and hat cover and this 16 year old unloads on you. He did. And the first shot, it hit my left eye and I went completely blind. It, it over the years, you know, I tell people it felt like I thought maybe I hit my head up on the trunk so hard that I was yeah. blackening out. So, you know, and the, now the, actually it was uh, one mistake I didn't do that I didn't share earlier with Jay is I didn't let dispatch know that I was changing one location to the next. I was in, still in the same neighborhood, probably not even three or 400 yards from the original call where I was taking the initial report. So that, you know, I forgot to add that one in. But the most crucial mistake that I made that day was I was shot in the left eye. I lost, well, I couldn't see out of my right eye. Thought somebody hit me upside the head with a two by four. I was, felt like I was blackening out. And when I turned to my right, that's when he shot me four times in the back. So I was not wearing my vest. And you had a department-issued vest. Correct. And we had a policy back then that you didn't have to wear them. You had had to have them in the patrol car, but you did not have to wear them. Yeah, And and, and two things I harp on all the time, even when I was still on the job I did, and I'm sure you're going to echo my thoughts exactly, is A, wear your vest, and B, put on your seatbelt. Exactly, Uh, yes. Those two things will save your life more than anything else. You you don't have to like either one of them. I didn't like them. I didn't like the the heat and the stinkiness that came out of the vest. Right. But it saved a lot of people's lives. That's right, and it has. So you're Uh, not wearing a vest, and you're shot four times in the back, once basically in the head, which blinded you. Right. Were you still conscious at that, that point? I was still conscious. I was able to, when I turned to my right, I went across the street in the neighborhood into the people's yard that was directly across from my patrol unit and laid there and being told things because at this time, you know, it kind of basically in and out that the suspects, you know, they left uh, the scene. They almost had a wreck because we were literally off the main road two houses down when they left the neighborhood, they almost hit a lady who happened to be a nurse at one of the local hospitals. That called her attention. She saw the patrol car. Then she came down and started rendering aid. Uh, I was able to get out on the radio. It's very, I guess the best way is distorted. It was very difficult to understand what I was saying. They could. It's one of those you had to listen to a couple of times that I was putting out, you know, my uh, codes, hey, I've been shot, signal 10s. Need help, ambulance, 1052, and all that. And it's weird how I was resorting back to my training and knowing these codes and signals as I'm letting them know that I was shot. But very short on that, uh, she came down, she called 911, people were responding. It had, sometime during that time, the husband had come home because she had, the, the lady who called in about her son and the other kid, uh, he was coming home and he had saw all this. Well, then he heard the gunshots. Well, he comes back up to where I'm at. Well, me and him, because I didn't, I couldn't see. I'm totally blind at this time. And I think, and I share this part of it because, you know, the officers. I feel like it's important. Keep fighting the fight. And he tried to take my gun from me. I didn't know who was trying to take my gun. You had no idea. So Good guy, bad guy, I, another police. You had no idea. Had no idea who he was. All I knew is somebody was trying to get my gun. I'm trying to protect my gun, and he was trying 
to protect all of us in case they came back. Now, I don't blame him. I don't blame him one bit for trying to do that. As a matter of fact, I applaud the man for doing that. But I I can't begin, David, to understand, even comprehend the the sheer terror of the moment to be blinded and and not know what's going on and not being fully aware that that the 16-year-old kid shot you. I'm sure you became aware. And then there's some man you don't know trying to disarm you. And, and help's not there yet. Right. Yep. And, you know, it was one of those, you know, until I came to about five weeks later, I think, that I actually knew that story. He had come to the hospital and shared it with me, which made me feel good because at least I didn't give up on the fight. Right. Because, and I didn't know. And, and I think that's important that, you know, these guys who get involved with stuff, keep fighting the fight. You know, don't don't give up on yourself. And that that uh, applies to everybody. That you know that applies. That was ingrained right. in us from the the academy on, and it doesn't just apply to. I always say if you know, if you're if you're getting it handed to you by an MMA fighter and you right. stay in a fight because help is around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, if you're one of those people who's gone through a lot of trauma and you're dealing with post traumatic stress and all the issues go along with that, and and you're thinking of giving up, you got to stay in a fight because it gets right. better. And, and for civilians, we all have horrible tragedies we go through. And, and I right. hear so many stories that people go through, and, and they're still hanging tough. And That's the right. same applies to them. They've got to stay in the fight. That's right. Yep. So you did. My, my hat's yep. off to you because I know what happens because I, I know your story. Right. And I, I'm, for one, I've, I know men I've worked with, women I've worked with, been shot multiple times that we never thought were going to make it. That we they thought did. that they're going to die at any moment, and they pulled through. They had right. catastrophic injuries, like you. Uh, but it's just w- when life is in the balance like that, and you have no idea which way it's going to go. As as someone on the outside looking in, say a coworker, it's horrifying. Right. And you know yep. what that is like because you've been through that with other officers. It's it's horrifying to see them go through that. And it's it's very powerless feeling because you can't do anything to fix it. Right. It's very difficult after all these years to even still talk about these sort of things, even though they didn't happen to me. They happened to people I know. And the things that happened to me were bad enough that they left a permanent impact. Um, So that's all I'm going to say on that note. Right. So this man is trying to disarm you. Did you become aware that there was other police there shortly after that, or what happened? Like I said, you know, during the whole time that I was, you know, still at the scene before they loaded me up in the ambulance. You know, I was kind of in and out, you know, at that point. Probably right before they did, uh, I just, and I had to do this by people telling me what had happened. I, cause not being able to see, I think probably was a good blessing for me. But the one thing that I did remember very well is that the one deputy who rode the beat next to me actually had received a call to an accident and I'd actually gone over to relieve because I was on another call. I'm like, let me go over there and take care of my beat, take the accident off of him. Well, he now feels guilty this happened to me because I was like, hey, I'll take the accident. He said, no, I got it, man. Go ahead and do what you got to do. And And that's uh, the kind of things we tend to beat ourselves up. I'll cut you off, David. We're going to take a short break. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to be right back. You can find us on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. Back to a conversation with Sergeant David James. He's currently with the Sheriff's Department in Georgia. We'll be retiring very, very soon after a very long career in law enforcement to 
recap back in March of 1990 and what should have been a, you know, a routine call for service. And I hate that word. He wound mm-hmm. up being shot uh, five times, once in uh, the left eye, which immediately blinded the left eye and left him blind in the right eye and shot four times in the chest. And when we left off, David, you were um, being picked up by the ambulance crew. Yes, and like I said uh, earlier, the guy that rode next to me, we had uh, he got an accident crash on, on my beat, and I went over to Hamlet, and he says, well, I've got it, I've already got started. And that's when I received that call. And I feel for this guy because you get very close when you ride next to your big yep, guys. You do. And, yeah, and it's, it's like family. And But I can remember him having my head in his lap, and I'm telling him, I said, Jerry, don't let me die here, man. Don't, yeah. don't let me die. And, um, you know, and I look back, this has been some years ago, it, what he has now gone through. You know, seeing, you know, I, and I try, I guess it's almost like I reverse the role. What if I was in his situation? Right. And, and mentally, it's got to be tough. And, uh, but, you know, he, you know, that's one thing you got to love about in our line of work. We are a true family. When it comes to this, these type of situations, you know, they, they're your true brothers and sisters. They will be there 100% each and every day for you. We had some, and interesting conversations that people outside of law enforcement may not understand. And when you said about don't let me die here, I understood that immediately because I made my partners promise me that if something really bad happened, that they would not let me die in the street in a, a trash-filled alley, that they would throw me in the back of a squad car or a wagon and let me die there somewhere with some dignity. It wasn't going to be I – mean, I, I think part of that is – to have some feeling of control of your own destiny when you know things can be really, really bad that at least you want it on your terms. I'll be honest with you, David, I've never quite been able to figure that one out. And that was, heck, I was in my 20s when I had that conversation. It was a long time ago. Right. And I've never forgotten that feeling. And I've never forgotten the feelings of all the bad stuff we went through, but none of it compares to what you went through. So, so you're being transported to by ambulance to the hospital right. at that point were you aware of how bad it was at that time yes i, I guess somewhat because like uh you know just not being there that, you know, i can remember i probably we were about six minutes away from the scene about halfway to the hospital and the last conversation i had was with the lady who was in the back of the ambulance i said i've got blood going down my throat i need to spit and that's the last thing that I remember until about five weeks later. Five weeks. Um, yeah. They they had me comatose. I mean, they had me out. And this is the part of the story, you know, when I get to this part, these are things that people have to share with me because I have no memory of it. You know, they had to kickstart me that night, the next day, a couple of times, you know, during the night, I guess, what I've been told. You coded several times then? Yes. Yes, I coded several times. And that's a fancy times. way of saying you died. Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like I said, the last thing I remember is I, uh, I had blood running down my throat and I need to spit. And she said spit. And that's the last conversation I do remember for five weeks. Well, I, yes, thank, I, I thank God for those people that worked on you. Uh, they're exactly. so dedicated and trained. Had it not been for both, I don't think you would be here to have this conversation. And by, by the way, People listening, 
it gets even more interesting. Uh, trust me when I tell you this. Um, so you were five five weeks basically in an induced coma, which is not uncommon with severe head trauma. Right. What were the extent of your injuries when you came to five weeks later? They, uh, they said within a couple of days, I, had, I was retaining a lot of fluid, and they had to basically, they had to cut me from my sternum down below my belly button. Everything just had, I put it like a clear shield when I was told over me so they could monitor stuff. Basically, like, kind of gives you an idea, you know, I, was, I weighed probably 175, 180 pounds. They said the next day I was retaining so much fluid that I looked like I was 300 pounds and my head looked like a watermelon, to put it in perspective. Right. What people, that's how they explained it to me. And uh, so they uh, kind of had to do that. And due to because of this, I, you know, I did lose my left eye for the first two months and a week, I think. I lived in total darkness. I was blind, you know, losing the left eye being blind totally in the right eye at this point. Then we had a doctor who'd come in. One of the things he did was uh, he originally they wanted to take the right eye out also because they thought it was just too much damage. Or they called in a specialist and he said, no, let's let everything calm down and wait. And we we might be able to do a surgery that can be somewhat successful. It wasn't 100% successful. I mean, I am able to drive during the daytime with specialty like a optic lens. I uh, had to wear contact lens and plus glasses. I have to use a Zoom text program to work off my computer. So, you know, I, I'm very pleased in that aspect. At least I'm able to do stuff that I never would have dreamed I would have been able to initially. So you you have some very limited vision in your right eye only. Right. Basically, my vision in my right eye is like 2080 plus two. Depending on the day, I might get one off the 60 line. Now, our, our mutual friend Patrick Cullinan says that um, yeah. you're legally blind in your right eye, but you've got some apparatus like a big weird, he calls like a big weird goggle thing you wear. <laughs> and it's well, like, yeah. like nothing's going to stop you. You can like, I'm going to the grocery store. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, a optic lens. It's, like I tell people who've never seen it, it looks like a, a very miniature rifle, rifle scope. It sets around the right eye, just above the, uh, right here at the lens. It's, you know, it's, the cool thing about it is that I can see, you know, 20, 30, sometimes 20, 20 with that lens to drive. But it doesn't have a lot of pressure with it, so, you know, it's one of those, it's, uh, you you kind of look and then you scan with it real quickly and then I have a uh, prism system to the left of that that's on the, beside the bridge of my nose that helps me with me not having a left eye, so when I use the prism, I can see a little bit over to my left a little bit. That's that's amazing. They, they didn't have that, but yeah. you also suffered some some catastrophic internal injuries. I did. I knew when I got out, I was in the hospital for just like I said, over two months, and uh, they they told me then that you know I had so much trauma to the to the body that I would have eventually have to have a kidney transplant, and it's not a kidney disease. It was just from the trauma that mm-hmm. caused kidney issues. And uh, so, in, uh, they, like I said, they told me that I would have to have a kidney transplant. And in 1992, the latter part, I started going into kidney failure. I had to start dialysis. And then in 1993, I uh, got my first kidney from my mother. 
We're going to take a short break. This is the Law Enforcement Today show with our guest, Sergeant David James, a current sergeant in a sheriff's department in the great state of Georgia. He'll be retiring very, very soon. The rest of his story is absolutely amazing. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk radio show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Back to our conversation with Sergeant David James, uh, Sheriff's Department in the great state of Georgia. We'd love to tell you which department, but... It's always a touchy subject, and uh, but they're a phenomenal agency. And someday I hope to get to tell people exactly what agency it was. So, David, you were you're shot multiple times in March of 1990, and you were blinded. You, you lost your left eye. Uh, you're legally blind in the right eye, but due to some special apparatus, you're able to have some vision and function. You also had catastrophic internal injuries, including kidney failure, and you had a, a transplant from 1992, you said, from your mom. Well, I started going into kidney failure in 1992, the latter part, and then in uh, May of 1993 is when I got the kidney from my mother. So was that a success or a success for a period of time? It, it was. Uh, I was able to, uh, from 1993 up until 2006, and that's when I started going back into kidney failure again and had to restart the process with dialysis and a whole laundry list of stuff. The second transplant was, uh, you know, it was hard, but very difficult. From When I started going into kidney failure in 1996, you know, we always, my sister, who was already willing to be a donor, uh, when she did the testing, she was not a match. So what we had to do is... You know, looking at all the different options, we were looking at what they call pair donor. Let's say, Jay, you need a kidney and uh, your wife wanted to give you a kidney and my wife was willing to give me a kidney, but neither one was a match for either one of us. So what they could do is send us to a hospital and we'd do kidney swapping. Say your wife was a match for me, my gotcha. wife was a match for you, then we would have kidneys at that point. Kind of a neat little concept there. Just, uh, you're trying everything and are you not yeah. getting any success in finding a donor? Yeah, well, I had, you know, we had my very best friend in the whole world, uh, Tim. When I say best friend, we've been friends since we were five years old and I'm 54. So I tell you, <laughs> that's a long time. Yes, and, it is. Uh, you know, he had come out and then a good buddy of mine who worked for the agency, Tommy, they also wanted to be tested. Well, they did. They made it through the first part of the test, but the when they went back the second time, they were no longer a match. And it's very important to this story that kind of remember that part because the second part that I'm going to get into about this is in February of 2007, I had another kid that had come up, and he uh, we were doing night qualification because at that this time from Based in 1991 to 2012, I was a, I was an instructor for the uh, agency. Uh-huh. But February of 2007, we were getting ready to do our annual night qualification, and we had a young deputy. He had gone through the academy. I was over the field training officer program back then, and he came up to me and asked me what he could do to be a possible 
donor. So I explained the process. He said, well, hey, let me go back and let me talk to my wife and, and my family, my mother and father. I said, okay, that's fine. Just no rush whenever you get to it. And, uh, well, we rock on for uh, up until mid-March. And uh, we'll get back to Mark's story in just a second. On a Friday, I had Dr. Wynn, who had done the first transplant. He was going to do the second transplant. And uh, he called me up one day. He said, man, I need you, if Tommy and Tim are willing to come in and be tested again, I've done a lot of research. I've talked to a lot of universities, hospitals around the country. And at that time, the old medical college had a policy that these the tissue type and antigens and all did not match up. You didn't transplant. Right. And that's what Tim and Tommy were running into. He says, hey, we can treat it. We are going to change our policy. If they're, in, if they're willing to come in, we'll start the process over. I said, okay, cool. So that weekend, I called Tim and Tommy up. So that was on a Friday. That Monday, Mark, the one that had come and talked to me about the transplant and what all he could uh, want to know more about it and wanted to go back and talk to his wife and his mother and father. He had a bad uh, car wreck um, in his patrol car. So anyway, <clears throat> you know, you know, we're all, you know, like I said early on, you know, we're we're like family, and so you know, it was a very bad crash where he went in between two trees, and vast majority of the crash happened on the driver's side door area. Mm-hmm. So on Wednesday night, uh, I had received a phone call that said, hey, it don't look like Mark's going to make it. So, you know, as we, you know, we just, everybody's, you know, praying, you know, praying for the family, praying for Mark, you know, like yeah. we've been doing the last couple of Because that's really all you could do. Right. Exactly. And um, that Thursday morning, I'd gone to work and I get a phone call and they said, hey, we've got you a kidney. We need you to come in. Well, I hadn't heard that he hadn't made it through the night. They said he possibly couldn't, he might not make it. Well, my first question is, I said, whose kidney is it? And they said, well, they can't tell you. And uh, so I go in, I call my wife, and uh, we we go down to the hospital. And and then uh, it wasn't until, that was probably 8, 8.30 in the morning on that Thursday morning. Uh, they sent me in about midnight because they still had to do more testing on me and everything and whoever the donor was at that time well about midnight i go in and do the transplant and the next morning um to find out that it was mark's kidney he did not make it and this is the young deputy that offered the kidney before right and it wasn't even really a guy you knew very well i it's not that i like we spent time just like i said we'd uh he went to the police academy which we were right next door to our local police academy uh-huh. in the state and we had our training center that was next door so i got to know him when i helped out with the uh, state academy and then when he came through the field training officer program you know that's how i got to know him in a little bit and not to sound corny but this young deputy who lost his life in, in a tragic car accident saved your life from when you were shot back in 1990 and he probably wasn't even born at that time if not he was a, a young child or a baby right. when that happened yeah he was about seven or eight so th- yep. this guy I, I imagine was an organ donor to begin with because otherwise you never would have gotten to the point where you right. would have found out whether you were a match or not right he was so he's a lifesaver in many different ways 
Exactly. So, this, and not to sound melodramatic, but you're still in a job, you're still serving despite these horrific injuries because of the selfless act of a young deputy who was killed in line of duty in a tragic car accident. Right. And he, had, you know, he, he did what he said he was going to do. He was going to go talk to his wife and his mom and dad. And the night that he did not make it, when he passed, they, uh, that was a decision that I guess they had made during that time. And by that the, they wanted that kidney to go to me if he was a match. And, and by that, that act of being an organ donor, and, and by the grace of God or powers that be or good fortune, whatever people believe in, right. that you were a match, you were able to help train other officers and to go out there and help save lives in their own community. And that simple act of being an organ donor has had a ripple effect on countless people in your community. Right. Oh, yes. And, and you know, and, you know, the story that I'll talk about that I was going to come back to, if Dr. Wynn, and, and I do give all the glory to God, there's no doubt about it, because by the grace of God, he had, hey, Dr. Wynn, you need to make sure you're doing everything you can. Because if he had not done his research and talking to these, these other hospitals and everything, universities, that I would not have gotten marks, kidney, because these same antigens and tissue typing that Tim and Tommy had that originally kept them from going further, Mark had the same thing going. Have you been in contact with uh, Mark's family, and uh, do you stay in touch with them? We, we do. We do a lot of stuff together. Uh, just already this year, we've, uh, my wife turned 50 this year, and uh, you know they came over for her 50th birthday. Uh, my son graduated college, one of them, and you know they came out for that. We just had a luncheon during law enforcement week with the agency and I went and sat with them during that time. So we, we, we do things probably four to five, six times. We talk a couple of times throughout the year. It, it was one of the, it's been, I think it was difficult for both sides at the very beginning. Cause it, you know, I guess the fortunate thing is that his sister and my wife love to talk. That helps. That helps a lot. <laughs> so that, it, it, that was probably a big help for me. And, you know, because it was like, you know, I feel guilty now because here he is. He, he's got a wife. He's got a two-year-old daughter. And he is now no longer with us for me to have a better quality of life. And it, it's taken me a long time to understand this process and not feeling so guilty. And, and it, it's not something that I've done by myself. It's because it's like the guy you talked about earlier, Patrick Cullen, and, you know, having him saying, hey, look, it's, it's all right, dude. Or the Andy Carriers, I don't know, uh, it's a very dear friend of ours. We're definitely going to have him on the show, too. Yeah, a, a great. You'll hear him say dude a lot. He, he is. He's a great dude. Both of them are. I mean, they're, they're, we're like brothers. On that note, we're going to have to say goodbye, and we are out of time. Uh, Sergeant David James, thanks so much for your service, and thanks so much for being a guest yeah. on the show. Thank you, Jake. And a reminder, folks, organ donors save lives. Again, thank you, David. Yes, sir. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. 
I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.